Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky says she has made the difficult decision to retire next month. Was she pushed into the decision or did she jump? And the federal government will no longer fund research with Chinese military and state security institutions. The province is going to play ball with them, though. And it's been a busy week in provincial politics here in Ontario. We cover everything from Ontario's fiscal outlook to Ford's stag and doe debacle with Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was a day of resignations. <laughs> uh, John Tory finally uh, submitted his resignation as Mayor of Toronto. He's leaving the job as of Friday. And uh, also the uh, Federal Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, has uh, sent his recognition into the government. And the Commissioner of the RCMP, the much maligned Commissioner of the RCMP, uh, announced yesterday that she will be stepping down. Emily Javesky has some details for us. In a statement, Lucky says it's not an easy decision to leave, as she has loved being the storied organization's 24th commissioner. Lucky took over an organization that had become mired in internal dissension over long-standing issues of bullying and harassment. She says she's proud of the steps taken during her tenure to modernize the RCMP through increased accountability and measures to address systemic racism. Lucky says she knows this work will continue after her last day on March 17th. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. So let's uh, do an assessment always do when somebody steps aside like this. Uh, what will the legacy be and and why now uh, to, to make this kind of announcement? Joining us to talk about this is Daniel Bailand, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let me get your perspective on this right away, because the speculation, I guess, with many, in many circles right now is, uh, I don't know that this came as a total surprise, but uh, was she pushed or did she jump? Well, look, uh, her term was, uh, you know, close to its end. You know, it's a five-year term, and she became uh, the, the commissioner, the 24th commissioner of the RCMP in, uh, in April 2018. So I think that uh, it's, you know, it's very likely that they will not have renewed their term, uh, that, you know, it was basically the end of the road. So you decide whether you, you resign or you're not renewed. And I think resigning probably uh, looks better because I think that it creates at least the illusion that there is some agency, some autonomy on your part that you're just saying, OK, I'm, I'm leaving. But she was obviously going, um, you know, she was going to lose her job anyway. And, uh, you know, go back when she was first selected and sworn into the role, and, and she said all the right things uh, about what she wanted to do. There were some concerns about the RCMP back then, certainly, and, and especially about uh, some of the inner workings of the RCMP, you know, charges of racism, bullying within the ranks, things of this nature. And, and essentially, she said she was going to clean it up. Uh, and, and move them into the 21st century. Well, we're into the 21st century, to be sure. But did she do anything in, in, a, in a positive sense here to try to, to address some of the key problems that were in the RCMP? Well, you know, she has taken some steps, but let's step back and think about what the RCMP is, okay? So first of all, the RCMP is a, a very large uh, bureaucracy, okay? The RCMP is, you know, part of the public sector, 
It's a major federal uh, national institution in Canada. It's big, and like big public bureaucracies, it suffers from inertia, right? Change is hard to bring about in big bureaucracies. We see that, uh, you know, uh, when we look at the other areas of, um, you know, the, the federal government. Um, so the RCMP is a big bureaucratic machine. So it's hard to change in general. But then on the top of it, the RCMP is also... Uh, 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 about the police, uh, specific occupation that is very, you know, unique in, in its nature, where there is a strong esprit de corps, a sense that, you know, you're part of something distinct from the rest of society. You have the, as Max Weber, the sociologist, wrote about more than a century ago, you have the monopoly of legitimate use of force, right, which is not always perceived as legitimate, but this is something that's very powerful. And it's also an old institution, right, uh, that is prestigious, but also um, is facing a lot of uh, public scrutiny more than ever before. So all these things, you put all these things together, uh, it means that, you know, uh, Brenda Lucky faced huge challenges uh, when she started in her job nearly five years ago, and the person who will replace her will face similar challenges. The things have not changed that much. Of course, a lot of things have happened, like the... Um, the Nova Scotia shooting, like uh, all the debate over the use of the Emergencies Act and the Freedom Convoy and so forth. So things have happened and things that have not really helped <laughs> the image of the RCMP, which, is, which was already uh, really wounded uh, back in 2018. So these are all things that are not um, uh, the things that basically Brenda Lucky didn't really control. But she also has made some mistakes uh, since uh, taking office, and that has added, I think, uh, injury to injury. Yeah, and, and I mean, we can go through a number of the things you just mentioned there, Daniel, and you know, there's some culpability, I'm sure, to be uh, allocated here. Uh, the Nova Scotia shooting, I, I think the main criticism during that inquiry was how, how, how they responded to it. And first, you know, they did not talk to the public about it. They did not warn the public about this. And there were some major concerns about uh, how they're, 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 they're troops were deployed, actually, in that particular circumstance. The other side of this, though, I wanted to get uh, some some clarity on. Uh, she's been accused off and on, especially during the Inquiries Act uh, Commission, of meddling in the politics. Uh, I, I, that's a kind of a two-way street, though, isn't it? And go, I'll go back to the, to the, to the Nova Scotia shooting. Uh, there seems to be some I don't know how much credibility there is, but some indication that uh, there was dialogue between her and uh, and the justice minister uh, about gun control and 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 the types of weapons that were used, et cetera. In other words, information that the government may have used for their political benefit to try that move that legislation packs. Uh, and that's that the sort of thing that RCMP commissioner should be doing, is it? Yes, but this is a you know this is a major problem. Uh, and there was an article by, you know, Kent Roach, who is a specialist of, uh, you know, the policing issues in this country that he published in uh, Policy Options last year. And one of the main challenges for the RCMP moving forward, he argued, is, is defining, uh, uh, you know, uh, really what uh, police independence is <laughs> and, and in relationship to uh, the federal government. Um, uh, and, and, and in the case of the, what happened in Nova Scotia, it was really about potential interference on the part of the PMO. <laughs> and so this is really hard. Um, uh, it's, it, you know, you're, you're between, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, when you're commissioner of the RCMP, you have to deal with politicians. 
uh, and at the same time you have to remain independent from them. And it's it's really a difficult position to be in. So yes, uh, you know, Brenda Lockie could have done a better job, but I think that the issue is we need to better define uh, the, 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 the relationship between the RCMP commissioner and the government of Canada, uh, especially in including uh, um, mini- uh, the relevant ministers and, and uh, even the prime minister. And I think this is not just about the commissioner of the RCMP. It's an institutional challenge, and it has not been tackled properly yet. Well, and I know that you know there are those critics that will say, well, they, they, there should be no politics in her job. Politics in that job as commissioner of the RCMP, it's unavoidable, isn't it, Daniel? First, first of all, she essentially reports to two different ministries, two different individuals who may or may not be at cross purposes on any particular issue. So, I mean, whoever the commissioner is going to be is going to get dragged into the politics anyway, aren't they? Yes, and so you have to be very savvy, and it's a balancing act, right? So you have to remain independent. Uh, and also, it's not just being independent. It's also the perception of independence, <laughs> which is, yeah. for the public, very important and, 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 and politically is, is uh, absolutely crucial. So, uh, you, you, and, and you have to be subtle. And, and this is a really uh, tough role. Um, and so, um, but as I said, it's not just about the person who uh, is in that role. It's about the institutional setting of it. And I think we have to improve the way we protect uh, RCMP commissioners uh, against political, potential political interference. And that's something that in the end uh, will have to be done by the federal government and ultimately by parliament. Uh, so I think that, you know, this could be part of the, the, the reform agenda uh, 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 concerning the RCMP. There are many other files and issues about the RCMP, um, but this one has to be tackled and probably tackled first. One of the other elements that uh, we talked about just at the beginning of this conversation, but it's it's been uh, evident for some time, of course, is, is insurrection in the ranks, shall we say? Uh, some you know some accusations about racism, about bullying within the ranks, uh, and I know that as the commissioner, it all lands on her desk, and she's and I think you know she understands that she's going to take the heat for something like that. But that also points to an issue with the chain of command, and not unlike what we saw with the Canadian military, doesn't it? Yes, and there are similarities between the military and the, the police. As I said, these are, you know, when, when you're a police officer, you're a member of the armed forces, uh, you're distinct from mainstream society, and, and you have this access to this monopoly of legitimate violence or legitimate force I mentioned earlier. But then there are questions about, you know, how sometimes the use of force is legitimate or not. And also, because it's a kind of close-knit world, policing world, just like the armed forces, as I mentioned earlier, there is this esprit de corps. Uh, there is uh, quite a bit of secrecy also within the service, and, and things are not that transparent. Um, and as for the chain of command, again, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's really difficult, difficult to navigate because of this esprit de corps and um, the sense that people may rebel against authority, and uh, may not, you know, support the, the commissioner, for example, and they can drag their feet on some of these files that are important files, important allegations. And, you know, policing should not, pol- the police should not police itself. There should be strong oversight, uh, in part because of the, the, the things that I've already said about the nature of policing in this country and elsewhere around the world. So we need strong civilian oversight over policing and at the same time preserve the political autonomy of the 
<laughs> the commissioner. So it's, it's doing several things at once that are in tension with one another. Well, and as whoever the commission is going to be, I mean, you've got a lot of balls in the air. One of them that she talked about five years ago, though, Daniel, uh, and I don't know that there's been a whole lot of progress on that is, and you touched on it a second ago, defining just what the RCMP is in, in 2023. You know, are, are they trying to be all things to all people? Uh, and how effective is that going to make them? I mean, in, in some jurisdictions, uh, they are the provincial police by, you know, the de facto provincial yeah. police. Uh, are they an intelligence agency? Well, sometimes. Are they a law enforcement agency? Uh, you know, and we have other agencies like that. I mean, there's a discussion going on in Ottawa right now, as you've talked to us about before, about, okay, what lane are you in here? Is this CSIS? Is the CRCMP? Is the I would think it would be beneficial for the RCMP to have that discussion. Absolutely. I think defining the role uh, more more clearly. Uh, you mentioned CSIS and the RCMP, but uh, pro provincial police uh, also contracting out. Or what, what will happen, in, you know, in the indigenous communities as well? So, um, you know, so there are a lot of. It's a, it's a huge country, diverse country, and 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 the, the RCMP is doing a lot of things, um, and is it's also a lot of. A lot of things for uh, different people, a lot of different things for different people. And I think that, yes, maybe narrowing a bit the mission of the RCMP or at least clarifying it and maybe moving out of as much as possible of indigenous communities. And uh, maybe also that we'll have more provinces pushing to have their own uh, provincial police force like Quebec and Ontario. There is a debate in Alberta about this. At least it was proposed a few years ago by the Fair Deal Commission to have a, an Alberta provincial police. Uh, you know, this might not happen, but uh, if this content about the RCN, our RCMP continues, maybe there will be more pressure on the part of larger provinces, at least, to, to create their own provincial police force. Uh, so uh, I, I think this, the future of the RCMP is not just about the federal government. Uh, it's also about what the provinces do, and uh, even at the municipal level, or what's done on reserve uh, in indigenous communities. So it affects uh, uh, all of us uh, in different ways. And so that's why we have to really, uh, you know, take that very seriously, what's happening within the RCMP, um, because it has implications for a lot of people. And we are in an increasingly diverse country. And yes, the RCMP needs to modernize, but also to be modernized, because as I said at the beginning of this interview, this is a big bureaucracy. There is a lot of inertia, um, and, and change will not occur spontaneously. It has to be also, you know, the pressure has to be on from the outside for change to occur, not necessarily by elected officials, because again, we want to maintain the political independence of the RCMP, but civilian oversight uh, is absolutely crucial. Absolutely. Uh, it's up to uh, the government, I guess, now. March 17th will be here final day as to how quickly they're going to respond and, and find somebody who can uh, tackle these issues. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. Daniel Bailon, the uh, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of uh, Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We brought you the story, uh, I guess, two, three weeks ago now. At, uh, it's not a new story. There was an update on it that, that, that wasn't very encouraging. And it has to do uh, with affiliations that are being established and have been established for quite some time uh, between uh, Chinese scientists, uh, 
very closely tied to to the Chinese military and a number of Canadian universities. Well, uh, the federal government now says they will no longer fund research with these Chinese military and state security institutions and is now urging the provinces and universities to adopt similar national security measures. Uh, Innovation Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne made the announcement yesterday. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks very much. Well, this is kind of a sense of deja vu here, isn't it? Because the government says, wait a second, we already did this. We we put regulations in place. And so, you know, that was that was the job done and we put the toolkit away. Uh, but I don't know that followed up if there was much oversight on it because it seems to be running rampant until uh, the Globe and Mail story a couple of weeks ago really brought it to everybody's attention again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite clear on the books with with Ottawa. If you're going to be a, a researcher and academic and you are applying for for government funds to to partner with foreign militaries, especially ones that have potentially disingenuous intentions to to Canadian interests, the likelihood of that grant being funded uh, at the federal level is is low to begin with. And so a statement from the House of Commons saying that we're going to make sure this doesn't happen even more is certainly signaling the right message. But there's actually a lot of work that's going to rely on universities and provinces to to make sure that these partnerships do stay mute. And, and in particular, it's not so much about Canadian money uh, going to help uh, Canadian researchers work with foreign militaries, but it's about trying to keep the foreign military money out of, of, of Canada and out of our institutions. And there's so much of it already present uh, like to the point where uh, many universities have international offices set up to help form these memorandums of understanding and to sort of do all the, the political jockeying to put them in place, that to start to unpack those is going to be a lot of um, tedious work, shall we say, by university administrations who were financially benefiting from, from these operations. It's a thing, uh, though, isn't there? Uh, yeah, I mean, the federal government uh, can can act as uh, Minister Champagne talked about here. Uh, they have control over things, as you mentioned, like the Canada Foundation for Innovation and Federal Research Grants. Uh, but a lot of this is provincial jurisdiction, so they're going to have to get them on site, aren't they? Absolutely, and and that's where you see, you know, if you recall back uh, before COVID, where a lot of the trade delegations that were going back and forth uh, between Canada and China also dragged along a few premiers with them too, right? So, I mean, the the sort of trade and cooperation. Uh, missions that were that were put in places where you would have everyone from agriculture to universities that were trying to form these partnerships, and in some cases they were meaningly, seemingly quite harmless, right? With student exchanges or uh, you know fast tracking uh, student visas for certain programs at universities, or you know even agricultural exchanges. But the more that these sort of stories are coming out now, uh, we see that there's a deeper. Uh, organization within China to to try to effectively undermine foreign research talent for the interests of of Beijing. So there's there's multiple programs uh, that they've that they've set up to to do this over the years. And now, if you look stateside, uh, you know you have to you have to sort of give a hand to the FBI for just how transparent they are when when someone gets in trouble. But there's a collection of researchers in the United States. That are now, uh, you know, been charged by the the Federal Department of Justice in the U.S. for engaging in these sorts of uh, collaborations. Now, sometimes the, this work is again like uh, working with military institutes in China on, say, missile development or, or quantum math 
programs and this sort of stuff. But like, there's also medical researchers who have been doing work on rheumatology and uh, vaccine development who are now finding themselves in the stocks in the U.S. because the U.S. is now viewing this as a form of, of malicious uh, sabotage and uh, and almost a selling of uh, of national national interests and uh, secrets. Well, and I think you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, but the, the example during the COVID research that was going on of the uh, uh, the Chinese nationals who, who were working in a lab in Winnipeg and just all of a sudden disappeared and ended up in Beijing a couple of days later. Uh, what did they take with them? We don't really know. The federal government's being pretty mum about that. So I guess the question here then is, is how stringent do you need to be with these regulations? Yeah, and, and this is what, what needs to sort of come into to the, the playbook in Canada because – uh, you know, and again, looking at, uh, at what the U.S. is doing with the FBI, there's actually an entire section uh, that's publicly available on the FBI website, just called the China Threat, and, and they're, they're pulling no punches there about how deep this goes. Uh, on one hand, we want to make sure that that there's some form of um, surveillance put in place so that Canadian academics aren't unknowingly getting involved with uh, malicious or belligerent activity in in China, so that anything down the road that a government like the U.S. or Canada could could be seen as, hey, this was actually working against our national interests, and yet you've got Canadian researchers who are, say, four years deep into a program, uh, a research program, who could now find themselves in a lot of hot water. Um, we need to have something in place, and universities can be very quick at at imposing, uh, you know, bureaucracy that can be stifling to 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 professors to to sort of keep them in, in their place. So there, there is the ability to do that. Uh, the second thing to think about is what do we see the behavior of uh, research collaborators from China and the US or China and Canada doing once these projects get up and going? And and like you said, the the disappearing into the night is actually a very common theme here. I'm, I'm looking at a, a file this week uh, by a uh, rheumatologist, rheumatology professor from, uh, I believe it was in, uh, in in Oklahoma, oh sorry, Ohio State, my bigger pardon, uh, who was basically caught on his way up to Alaska looking for a charter flight out of Alaska, uh, and the U.S. authorities found him carrying three large bags, one small suitcase, and a briefcase containing two laptops, three cellular phones, several USB drives, and get this, several bars of silver, uh, and expired Chinese passports for his family and deeds for property in, in China and other items. And so that's literally what they found uh, up there. And the question is, you know, what's where is this information going, and and what is it that 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 China wants? Uh, the the two, you know, the thing is, when you look at a state like China, uh, it's not like they're coming up with these these operations on the whim. There's usually some sort of bureaucratic trail. And the two programs that they have in effect now that are kind of blending together is one called the Thousand Talents Plan, and the Thousand Talents Plan. Uh, was an overseas high-level talent recruitment program that tried to target notable foreign academics and researchers to basically come on board and work with Chinese collaborators uh, either in institutions in China or from their home their home base uh, in, in, in an overseas university and to share those findings. And the second thing that's coming together right now is uh, in Chinese they call it the, the, the Xuan Fan, the persuading to return, um, this this goes back to our uh, uh, what they call the plan of, of Operation Fox Hunt, uh, which was formerly called Operation Skynet in in Beijing, and this is where we get into those police stations that we talked about earlier, Bill. Oh, yeah. Where there's yeah. there's volunteers who are uh, working in cities around the world 
to try to get people uh, back into China to either return return goods, return secrets, or uh, face consequences for them and the family. So there there are these operations that exist, and they're they're starting to come together as we're seeing. Well, as you talked about with us before, I know the Five Eyes and and our, some of our other allies are glad that we're finally addressing this, but I think we've got a long way to go on this yet. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for this great conversation as usual. Thank you very much, Bill. Always a pleasure. You betcha. Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. My daughter has a personal life. I don't get involved in that. You know, we've known tens of thousands of people over the years, and I don't sit there with a checklist as they're coming through the door. Uh, well, maybe he doesn't, but uh, anyway, that is amazing. That's Premier Doug Ford. He was at a presser yesterday, and, and the question came up again about the stag and doe and, and, and the number of developers that were in attendance, apparently, uh, money-paying uh, developers. And, uh, you know, there are concerns here. I know that he keeps referring to the fact that the integrity commissioner has cleared him of this, but uh, that's, uh, well, even that's something that's raised a great deal of skepticism. One of the people that uh, is asking those questions, and because it's his job and he's very good at it, is our next guest, Colin DeMello, who is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, Colin, uh, great to have you back in the program. Uh, You were there. Uh, You've been covering this uh, since the story broke a number of weeks ago. Uh, I know that uh, I don't want to get too deeply into this, but I mean, uh, I've, I've, I've discovered that not everybody who follows you on Twitter th- is is pleased about the fact that you and uh, some of your colleagues are pursuing this story. Well, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, we've been getting a lot of emails, some of them positive, incredibly supportive emails, and then uh, some emails from you know angry, uh, perhaps supporters of of the premier who have chided us for uh, asking him questions about this. I, I find a lot of people kind of draw this contrast between Doug Ford and uh, Justin Trudeau, and, and depending on which side of the political spectrum you might fall personally, you, you know, you some people feel like we might be being too hard on Doug Ford and not necessarily hard enough on Justin Trudeau. Uh, one person yesterday sent me an email basically telling me um, not to have children <laughs> because, um, you know, I, that, I, that I shouldn't breed as an example. So some of the vitriol has been, has been kind of nasty, but I, I mean, it is our job to hold elected officials accountable. And in between elections, really, you know, people who vote for politicians don't really have a lot of recourse, a lot of say in, in you know, how these politicians are held to account. You take what's happening with Toronto City Council right now, you know, can voters go in there and ask the mayor questions directly? No, it really is the journalists who do all of that work. And that's why what we do is so important. And we do it really on behalf of the the voters and the listeners and the viewers out there who depend on us to kind of ask those questions that might be on their minds. Well, and you, as you say, the, the you know political bent may be part of this here. You know, they've already got an affiliation or a, 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 an indication that you know they want to support a party, but they tend to forget. As you've been doing this for a long time, uh, and your job is is to hold politicians' feet to the fire, whether it's Kathleen Wynne or Doug Ford or Dalton McGiddy or whatever the case might be. Uh, but when people set, put posts like that, like the one that you just referenced, they forget about all those other things. They just want to be, hey, now you're picking on my guy, and I don't like that. Well, and I I know it's easy to just uh, kind of push it back, but it's it's a little troubling when you see sort of things like that, uh, because you're not going to give up on this, and neither are your colleagues about this, because uh, this this is a classic situation here where uh, the, it's the the way that the government is trying to spin this just doesn't seem to meet with, with the way the public is looking at this, uh, because the premier doesn't seem to want to connect the dots here, that these are an awful lot of the people that paid money uh, for this, which is pay to play, some people have categorized it, uh, benefited from the Greenbelt decision that was made not too long after that. 
Yeah, and, and that's the thing, right? I mean, there are a lot of people publicly who will connect those dots, even though if the premier doesn't want to connect them himself. And a lot of this started after those questions were raised about, you know, this green belt deal. The premier in 2018, you know, professed that he would not touch the green belt. Then in 2022, right, while everyone's attention was on the the teachers' strike that was happening with uh, with QP, the education support workers, the government, you know, made this fly-by-night announcement that they were going to be removing 15 pieces of the green belt um, and they would now be developable lands. Well, who owns those 15 pieces? Developers. And some of those have very close ties with the progressive conservative government. Now we've learned that in August, the premier actually held a party, a stag party for his his daughter and son-in-law-to-be And there were developers who were guests, the premier has admitted. We've been told through our sourcing that lobbyists, those who have to influence the government um, and have to adhere to very strict lobbying rules, they were also invited. We learned from the premier yesterday that tickets were being sold at $150 a pop. You know, which can amount to a lot of people because the pre a lot of money rather because the premier said there are six thousand people who might attend an event in his backyard. Six thousand times one hundred and fifty, that's nine hundred thousand dollars. And who's that money coming from? And where is that money going towards? And who gets to benefit from that from the policy standpoint? There are so many questions here. The premier doesn't think that this is one that should be pursued, but you know that's that's his view. Our view is that it should be pursued. Well, and, and it is being, I know that the Integrity Commissioner has already ruled on that. We can talk about how efficient the Integrity Commissioner is, but there are other uh, investigations about this. The Auditor General is going to have a report on this uh, pretty shortly, too, and I know you'll be, be covering that. Let's switch, because we'll take that as it comes. Uh, by the way, it looks like uh, the, the Premier may, uh, against his worst wishes here, get a lefty mayor in Toronto. Uh, John Tory has officially uh, resigned. I know you guys asked him about that yesterday, and he was pretty adamant about the fact that he, he likes John Tory. Uh, even though Tory and he was seen to be political adversaries at one time, but they developed a special kind of relationship, didn't they? Yeah, they certainly did. I, and I think, you know, largely throughout the pandemic as well, that that really afforded them to have a better relationship because it forged a lot of ties that, the you know, no other situation uh, would have really allowed them to forge those kind of bonds. Um, but but John Tory and uh, and uh, Mayor D- uh, Premier Doug Ford have really worked together quite well, quite collaboratively, because, you know, John Tory doesn't really criticize Premier Doug Ford. The two work hand in hand uh, quite a bit. Recently, um, you know, they, they brokered a deal in the back room rooms that would give John Tory these, you know, super mayor powers, these strong mayor powers that effectively lets him craft the budget, pass the budget all on his own. And we saw those powers being used just yesterday when this budget that was crafted by John Tory was passed by John Tory. So, uh, so Premier Doug Ford, you know, wouldn't necessarily say that John Tory shouldn't resign. He said that's a decision that he should make with his family. Of course, now he has. But the Premier was basically saying that John Tory was one of the best people for Toronto, that he had a vision for Toronto, and that he was really kind of aligned with the, the provincial priorities when it comes to uh, building affordable housing. And so the two see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And that's one of the reasons why the Premier seemed to indicate that he can work with him. Now, here's the key. If there is a left-leaning mayor who is elected at Toronto City Council, we haven't had one since 2010 when David Miller uh, had, had left uh, the office of mayor. If that happens, will these strong mayor powers that were given to John Tory be rescinded? And the premier said yesterday, 
no, he'll keep them in place, even though it might create some problems for Premier Doug Ford in the future, but he'll keep them in place and he might even expand them to other municipalities. So more on that to come, but at least for now, we know that the status quo with strong mayor powers will remain. Uh, yesterday, uh, the finance minister, Peter Bethlenfalvy, was also front and center uh, with his economic update uh, and a, a rosy picture, relatively speaking, uh, saying that Ontario is in pretty good shape. There was one point of contention, though, that you've reported on a couple of weeks ago, Colin, uh, and that was from the uh, the, 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 the public, uh, the financial officer that essentially said uh, the government seems to be piling up an awful lot of money and they're not quite sure where it's going to go. And so it's almost like a slush fund. And, uh, and and Mr. Bethlenfalvy was talking about that yesterday and said, well, they don't know the whole picture, which I guess is really the, the standard answer for a finance minister when they question about this. Uh, but it's it's still there, and he's still adding to it right now. And is, is there a concern about exactly what that money is going to be doing? Well, well I, there has been this, uh, this habit from the Ford government to kind of squirrel away a lot of money, larger uh, contingency funds than would be otherwise normal. And, and it makes it incredibly difficult for someone like a financial accountability officer to really have accurate line of sight into what that money is being used for, whether it will ever be used, or exactly how the government is going to be you know, using that those funds. So the government could, as an example, set aside a huge contingency fund, $5 billion, $3 billion, whatever, what have you, and then say, oh, look, we're still in a deficit position because we've got this, you know, we, we have more, we're spending more money than we're actually taking in and we have to borrow in order to make up that difference. But the, the financial accountability officer is saying, wait, you, you you have this big pile of cash that you just haven't allocated. It's just sitting there in a rainy day fund, and you're not telling us exactly what you're using it. The financial accountability officer says this is not really accounting as usual, and he's really saying that you know it merits a little bit more transparency on the government's uh, perspective. But the government is saying, and you know perhaps rightly so, that they don't know what the future will hold. There's a lot of talk about a recession. There's a lot of talk about a contracting economy. Um, and, you know, they're always setting money aside for that worst case scenario. They don't know if it'll come. It seems like the worst case scenario might not materialize, but they're holding that money back anyway, just so that they can redistribute funds whenever they need to. Well, I know you're going to stay on that story as well. Colin, a busy day for you. I know. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for uh, Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.